This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. I think that a lot of us really overestimate our healthy choices. Like people will come in and be like, oh yeah, I eat really well. And really what they're saying is, I have aspirational values of eating really well. You have to be able to pinpoint where you're going the most off the rails. Like what's your biggest negative bang for your buck habit? So you can sort of address that. And that's one of the great things about journaling in general. Welcome to the new and improved 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll learn all about the connection between Alzheimer's disease and sugar. We'll hear about the benefits of keeping a health journal. We'll get a physician's take on e-prescriptions. And lastly, we'll discuss lectin-free and gluten-free diets. But first, a little bit of business. Today's sponsor is Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's Unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with that great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try Activated Charcoal and Mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality and natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel's article in the April issue of Tonic was frankly scary. It was all about the connection of Alzheimer's disease to sugar. So, uh... Welcome back to the show, sir. As always, I'm happy to be here, and I can honestly tell you this was a surprise to me too. The reason I did this is someone, a friend of mine, asked me to look into it. Right. And I started looking into it, and the science on it is relatively new. In the science world, it's all been in the last decade, so it's not very well known yet. But it scared the living daylights out of me, too. You know, we've been hearing so much about why sugar is bad for you. But now we have yet another reason why we really have to consider our consumption. And also, on the Alzheimer's dementia side, I mean, there's been research going on for years suggesting all sorts of different reasons why people go through this, from aluminum to diet to this to that. So now uh, the focus is on sugar. So let's start with Alzheimer's, what it is for those who may not know and how it develops, et cetera. Alzheimer's is, in my opinion, one of the scariest diseases out there. Uh, Unfortunately, most of us will know someone who will go through it because it's just that prevalent. But boiling it down, Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. Essentially, over time, you begin to lose the capability of your brain. And how it manifests itself is that it's the degradation of the actual impulses from your nerves to your brain cells themselves due to plaque buildup inside the brain. And what happens is as those impulses weaken and weaken and stop transmitting, the brain cells themselves die. 
And that's what it causes. It, it's quite nasty. Right. And, you know, initially symptoms are loss of short-term memory. Sometimes the long-term memory isn't, you know, eventually it gets impacted. Yes. But, but initially it's short-term memory mm-hmm. uh, that is greatly impacted. And, and then eventually it sort of digresses from there. Well, the joke is always people say, well, I'm having a senior's moment. But the problem actually is for some people, that's how it starts. And then it just keeps getting progressively worse. But what makes it the scariest, in my opinion, is how it affects us as people because it causes a reduction in your ability to think, reason, understand, remember, and communicate. That's the starting point. Right. Then after that, it actually changes your emotions and your mood and the behavior due to them. So what ends up happening is it changes who we are. Right. Not only to the external world, but to ourselves. Because while this is all happening, you're still realizing it. But you can't stop it. So it changes who we are fundamentally as people, and that's the scariest part to me. No, it is terrifying. Yeah. So there is a rise in people being diagnosed with Alzheimer's despite the fact that we're understanding better how we can prevent it. So so why is that the case? Well, first of all, to say there's 25,000 new cases annually in Canada, and over half a million Canadians are living with it now. Yikes. Those are big numbers. Now... The weird thing about the rise in cases is it's not what we'd expect because other than genetics, the contributing factors that we know of are smoking, alcohol consumption, blood pressure, and cholesterol. All of these, there have been massive campaigns by public health agencies. To inform everybody. Yeah, and by your doctor. Every one of us, no matter how young or old you are, have heard these, heard about the dangers of them, and been told... Look out for them. Make sure you're okay. Don't let things get out of control. Despite this, rates keep going up and up and up and up. Right. And the question is why? If we know, why is this occurring? Well, now that's where the fun of the new science comes in. And I say fun because I'm one of those people, I get excited anytime there's new science. Right. That excites me, even if it's not the greatest about conditions, it excites me that there's new science. So there's a doctor called Melissa Schilling. She's from the University of New York. She's a professor there. And she had a theory. And her theory was that there was a strong connection between blood sugar levels and Alzheimer's. So in 2010, she underwent a huge review of the clinical data that was existing. Mm -hmm. And she showed in her review that she published that people who have type 2 diabetes are two times as likely to get Alzheimer's as people who don't. Huh. And that's a big number. Forget about the word, the phrase statistical significance. Any times you're two times, that's huge. Right. And, and that put people on notice. So she also found that people who have diabetes and use insulin are also significantly higher at risk. That one was really shocking because no one had, had made that connection before. Hmm. And what made it even more compelling is that she's not the only person out there now talking about it. Her results were confirmed by a large study that followed over 5,000 people for 10 years. So we're not talking a short-term study. We're not talking small numbers. So it's hard to attack it as being, oh, a one-off fluke. It's real. And the follow-up study found that people with high blood sugar had a faster rate of cognitive decline than those with normal blood sugar, even if they weren't diabetic. In other words, the higher your blood sugar for the longer period of time the faster the rate of cognitive decline. Right. So uh, what we're talking about now, and I'll use a phrase, although it's out of vogue, it's pre-diabetic, right? It's your, Potentially. 
you know, so it's somebody who's living an unhealthy lifestyle who may or may not have been diagnosed with the potential to develop diabetes. Correct. Because for all of us, no matter who we are, we go through blood sugar spikes right. every day. Right. Some of us, if we indulge too much, the spike is huge and the crash is really quick after it. Right. Others who eat a healthier diet or lead a more active lifestyle, the spikes aren't as high. Right. But the more spikes you have and the higher the spikes are over time leads to blood sugar issues and can contribute to this. Okay. So were there more studies beyond the initial study uh, that Schilling did? There were others who, who followed, correct? Oh, definitely. She wasn't alone. There's Dr. Roberts with the Mayo Clinic. So right. we're, we're talking another prestigious doctor at a prestigious clinic. He released a study in 2012 where he studied 1,000 people. And what he did is he categorized them based on their levels of consumption of carbohydrates as a percentage of their diet. And carbohydrates are precursor to sugar. Our bodies take the carbs and they convert it into sugars. Correct. All carbohydrates are converted into sugars. Some faster than others, some at more complete than others, but all of them are converted to sugars. Right. And, that, but and that's our why body uses as energy. And that's why it's relevant. Correct. Sorry. And what he found was that the group eating the most carbohydrates had an 80% higher chance of developing cognitive impairment than those who ate the least amount. Okay. So when you're talking about cognitive impairment, that doesn't necessarily mean Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's is certainly circumstances of cognitive impairment, suggesting that this is even more broad-based than simply developing Alzheimer's. It's Correct. Alzheimer's is one form of cognitive impairment, right? but cognitive impairment is the umbrella right. concept. And it's potentially going to happen to all of us as we age, so it's something we would hope to avoid. Correct. Now, it wasn't just Dr. Roberts and Dr. Schilling. There's also Dr. Gottesman, who's at John Hopkins. Again, another prestigious One institution. One of those slacker places. Right? <laughs> yeah. And she came out saying that not only is it the plaque that's an issue that sugar makes bad, right? but there are other ways that sugar contributes to cognitive decline. And her research showed that sugar consumption weakens blood vessels, increasing the likelihood of strokes, causing dementia. Higher sugar intake also makes cells, including those in the brain, insulin resistant, which leads to cell death, which leads to dementia. And then overeating causes diabetes and obesity. And diabetes and obesity by themselves actually lead to increased plaque, which causes cognitive decline, dementia, and Alzheimer's. Right. So it, sugar is not working on one mechanism to hurt you. It's working on multiples. And what ended up happening is Dr. Schilling actually came up with a theory as to why sugar is so bad in the brain when it comes specifically to the plaque that causes Alzheimer's. Okay, so explain that. What she is theorizing is that there's a specific enzyme called insulin-degrading enzyme. And this is an enzyme, when it works properly, what it does is it actually breaks down insulin in your body and allows it to be used. Okay, good. And which is a good thing, definitely. The problem is that this specific enzyme also breaks down the amyloid proteins in the brain that cause the plaque. Huh. So she theorizes that people who don't have enough insulin aren't going to make enough of the enzyme to break down both the insulin and the plaque. But conversely, the people who use insulin to treat diabetes right. end up getting insulin spiking when they inject. Right. And what that does is that causes a surplus of insulin at that specific time. Right. So all of the enzyme rushes to, to break down that insulin. And there isn't enough to deal with the plaque buildup. You got it. 
So it's a double-edged sword, either having too much sugar because you're consuming it or having too much insulin to control the sugar you're consuming, both of which deplete you of that enzyme, which is key to stopping the plaque from building up in your brain, causing Alzheimer's. Right, so you can see how long-term overuse, I guess is the word, of sugar, overconsumption of sugar, Mm -hmm. is going to lead to this cycle, uh, which is certainly bad for your brain health. Definitely, And, and the problem is, cycle is the good word, because no matter what you do, we eat every day. Right. And this is going to cause a cycle, because what ends up happening is, we end up developing patterns. Right. And... If you have a healthy diet pattern, healthy exercise pattern, you're going to minimize your risk. However, if you indulge occasionally, all is good. But how many of us indulge occasionally? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, so we've, just, we've just spent a little over 10 minutes scaring the hell out of everybody. <laughs> Keep listening. Keep listening. Joel has some answers, and they're pretty, they're pretty straightforward. What can we do now that we're armed with this information that sugar isn't great for us. I mean, the obvious answer is cut back on the sugar, right? Yes. Now, the thing is, you have to remember, it's not just what you eat, it's also how you eat and when you eat. Okay, so expand on that. And that changes. What I mean by that is, for example, you could have a chocolate bar. Pick a bad example of a food. So a chocolate bar, we all know chocolate bars, high sugar. Now, if you sit down and you're like a child who hasn't had one in six months, you're going to just woof the thing down. Yes. You're going to get a ton of sugar into your system really quickly. Your sugar is going to spike dramatically, and it's going to trigger all these problems. However, so if you're going to have that chocolate bar, all of us like to indulge occasionally, and you eat it slowly and not by itself. At the same time, you have a protein source. You have something that's high in fiber. It'll slow down your body's absorption of that chocolate bar, so the spike won't be as high and the damage won't be as bad. All right. So, and there's also sugars that have different glycemic index numbers, Correct. which goes to how quickly the body absorbs uh, the sugar into the bloodstream. So, Correct. There's a whole diet based on that concept called right. the glycemic index diet, right. and that ranks foods and ingredients based on how quickly they cause your blood sugar to spike. The other thing is you have right now, there's a very popular diet called the ketogenic diet, which restricts carbohydrates and sugars dramatically, favoring instead healthy fats and mild protein, all of which will help reduce the spiking. Right. And, you know, to cut to the chase and get to the end of it, Processed white sugar is just about the worst sugar that you can put into your body, Uh, you know, in terms of not only the glycemic index, but also just straight up. If you want to spike your insulin levels, the processed sugar is is the worst for you. Definitely. And the thing you have to remember is it's not just processed sugar. Because all carbohydrates eventually become sugar, the easiest way to think about it is if it's processed and it's white, it's not good for you. Right. And it's not that there's any issues specifically with that concept. It's more along the lines of to make something white that isn't naturally white, they have to remove so many things. And one of the biggest things they have to remove that's healthy for you is fiber. Right. And when you remove fiber, you speed up dramatically the amount of sugar absorption and at the same time, the spike. Right. So by removing fiber, you're hurting it. And conversely, by adding fiber, you reduce it. It slows down the digestion and it also balances out the sugars. That's why there's a huge difference between eating an orange 
and having a glass of orange juice. Right, because with the orange, you're getting the pith, you're getting the skin. Well, you're not eating the rind, but you're eating all the white parts and the the fibrous parts of of the fruit, and your body can extract the nutrients it needs from it at a slower pace. Whereas juice is just, it's almost like drinking sugar water. Well, essentially, my, uh, my grandfather used to say it best to me is, the only difference between a can of soda and a bottle of orange juice is the flavor. <laughs> and to the your pr- body and the price. <laughs> yeah. To your body though, yeah. They're both liquid sugar, which is going to get into you really fast and there's absolutely no fiber. Okay, we only have time for one more question. So, uh, restricting sugar, increasing fiber, what other advice can you give people who want to lower the sugar consumption or live a healthier lifestyle to avoid this problem? A wide wide variety diet have a lot of different foods, just a little bit of them, and stay away from processed foods wherever possible. Go as far back to the source as possible. And the last thing is exercise, exercise, exercise throughout the day. Don't go insane and try and run a marathon tomorrow if you've never done one, but throughout the day, keep moving. 10,000 steps, that's just a starting point, but start there. Fantastic advice. You'll come back to the show next month? Always happy to. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. Our next guest, Kathleen Trotter, is a fitness expert, nutritionist, life coach, and monthly guest on BT Montreal and Rogers Ottawa. She's the author of books, Finding Your Fit and the New, Your Fittest Future Self. Welcome back to The Tonic. Ah, hello, Jamie. How are you? So uh, when I lost my weight, I utilized... You were showing photos. I it's was. crazy. You're like a different friggin' person. I know. I, 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 at one point, I did not even have a neck. Uh, <laughs> the no neck, Jamie. Exactly. I use different expertise and resources to achieve my goal. But there's one that I never used that you're here to talk about, which might have been very helpful back in the day for me and might have been something I could have used, which is journaling. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, what do you mean by journaling? Well... Journaling exists on such a continuum, and I'm excited to talk to you about all of them because I feel right now I'm a 
huge devotee of journaling. I just sort of figured it out how to use it for myself. Right. I kind of resisted for a long time, actually, for two reasons. Because I, I talk a lot, like I, I'm in therapy, I talk to my friends, so I always was like, I don't need another kind of excuse or reason to talk. Like, you know, it's more I, what I need is sort of silent time. Right. Um, so I resisted that. And I also, I've had my own battles with sort of weight and stuff over the years, going right. from like you, sort of no neck Kathleen, and then I went through periods where I was sort of over, overly sort of what they would call orthorexic. Like I was just too structured. I never got really, really sick, but I got close to it. And I've always been wary of that sort of traditional food and exercise journal where you write down every single thing that you eat because I thought it's going to take me down sort of not the best path for me. A lot of my clients use it and I'm definitely not opposed to it. And I sort of feel it has its place in the journey because you have to, you know, with awareness brings choice. You can't make better choices, you know, if you're not aware. Right. Now, my perspective on it is I know that I would need to do it or mm-hmm. I should have used it because I would be resistant to it. Because yes. I think it would be I, Because I think it would be very effective for me because uh, you can be dishonest with yourself, right? You 100%. Can, you can pretend that you didn't sneak those sours or that extra piece of chocolate. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing it down... There's a record of it, and that makes it harder, which, of course, is why it's so effective, right? And you also just see your patterns because, you know, if you're really good until 7 o'clock at night and then you eat all your calories, like, after dinner from 7.30 till, you know, 11, then that'll show you, oh, interesting, you know, I I should sort of stick with what I'm doing throughout the day, but then stop eating at 8 o'clock at night. So maybe you're the the person that are like, you know what, I'm going to do a 12 by 12 intermittent fast every day, which is, like, between 7 and 7, I don't eat. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't look at your journal, you know, that... A lot of my clients will sit, come in and when they've decided to be healthy and they'll be like, you know, I'm going to make my breakfast the best breakfast ever. Then we'll look at the journal and what we'll figure out is, you know, their breakfast is actually not that bad. Right. Where they're eating a thousand ca- extra it's calories lunch. <laughs> is lunch or, you know, business lunches or right. at 11 o'clock at night or whatever it is. Yeah, so yeah. you have to be able to pinpoint where you're going the most off the rails like what's your biggest negative bang for your buck habit and then so you can sort of address that and that's one of the great things about journaling in general why do you think journals work i really think it's the awareness piece and i think that it's a lot of us really overestimate our healthy choices like people will come in and be like oh yeah i eat really well right and what really what they're saying is i have aspirational values of eating really well you know they'll say like oh yeah i exercise five days a week and i eat you know five servings of vegetables and then when we actually look at their journal yeah Maybe they do that Mondays and maybe Tuesdays, but then the you know as of Wednesday they start to fall off, and then as of Thursday's the weekend, and then Friday's really the weekend. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking (laughs) about. So far, what we've been really talking about is that sort of traditional food and exercise, which is great. Um, And there's apps now that you can use and you can write it down. And I like to encourage my clients, especially the newer clients, like at the beginning of their journey, to do that for a couple weeks or a couple months. Well, what what is a fitness journal? Just for those who might not know what it is. Okay, break it down. Nuts and bolts. I like it. So if you wanted to do pen and paper journaling, you would just every day, you would write down the time of day you ate the food, how much. So not just pasta, but was it two servings of pasta? Was it four servings of pasta, right? Not just chocolate, but how much chocolate? I think this is really important. You know, you can kid yourself. You can say, I ate, you know, one portion of spaghetti, but the truth of the matter is, you know, with Health Canada guidelines, you know, like you can see exactly what a portion Portions is. Portions count. And, you know, that's where the lies come in, right? Like, like if you're saying to yourself, oh, I had a glass of wine. No, you probably had two. Absolutely. And you didn't recognize it. Yeah. You really, it, the journaling isn't going to help you if you aren't being honest about what you're writing down. For sure. And I also think on the counter side, 
if you say, like, if you're not aware of portions, if you're just sort of like, oh, well, I had chocolate, then as soon as you have chocolate, you can self-sabotage and be like, well, I've already had chocolate, so I might as well have more. Right. But once you embrace that portions really count, you can be like, oh, I had a little bit of chocolate. That's fine. Let's go for a walk. Let's have some water. You don't shame spiral into the like, well, I should have more chocolate and then wine and then cake and right? Because you're like, yeah. you know, one yeah. piece of chocolate's not the same as five. Right. So so how does it work? Are we just simply inputting, you know, what we're doing? Is it as simple yeah, as that? For the traditional food and exercise journal, it really is time of day, portions, exercise, right. water, alcohol for sure, sugary drinks. So make sure you also count all of the, the uh, liquids you drink, right? Do you monitor sleep in these journals? So again, it depends on the sort of traditional food and exercise journal, not so much. Right. But I think 100% we should because we know how sleep is connected. I think that what the stats are is if you get four hours or less of sleep, you're 73% more likely to be overweight, right? Like, yep. it, you know, you have more time awake to eat your calories, your hormones, your ghrelin, your leptin that keeps you feeling full and keeping feeling, you know, the ghrelin makes you feel hungry. So those, all those hormones are out of whack if you're not sleeping. So I would definitely encourage the sleep tracking as well. But this is where you can sort of get into tweaking the journals to fit what you want. So what other types of journaling? So that's, you talk about the traditional yeah. journal. What else What else would you recommend journaling and what would it look like? Okay, so I really like what I call the X versus O journals. Okay. And why that is, is because it starts to connect you to the emotions behind your food. So you would have a page and if... The meal, if you sort of ate when you were hungry, stopped when you were full, ate nutritionally dense foods, um, you could just put an X through that meal, right? So you're just like, you know what? I listened to my body. I didn't have a lot of sugar. It was pretty like what I call Captain Obvious, good eating. Yep. But if you ate when you were lonely, you over it, you got to feeling full and you kept going. You right. ate when you weren't hungry. You had, you know, five servings of chocolate. You didn't have a vegetables. Then you would put a big circle for either the meal or the snack. And then you would put in there what you ate Mm -hmm. and the emotions behind it. So then you can start to brainstorm, okay, interesting, I ate when I was lonely, so maybe I should have phoned a friend. Right. Right? Or I ate when I was tired. Oh, interesting, I should have probably just gone to bed. That's a big one for me. Right, I will eat late at night to keep up. Right, yes. you, uh, yeah. so because I don't hey, feel like you're a busy guy and you well, got lots to do. Oh yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, but so if I could avoid the late night eating in order to keep myself up, I would have both a better night's sleep and I would not have consumed, let's say, that extra chocolate. Oh my night. god, and the amount of calories that so yep. many of us consume at night because we're also we are a little bit more tired, so our defenses are down. Right. And if it's in the house, it's so easy to just eat it because you're like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. And that's one of the other nice things about the journal is you can see your patterns. Because if you self-sabotage by saying, well, it's just this once, right. and you can be like, oh, well, actually, it was also the day before and right. the day before and right. then four days before. Perhaps um, I'm being a little too kind to myself. Exactly. Right? All these breaks I'm giving myself is more than just a break. Well, it's no, yeah, it just becomes your new normal, right? right. It's, exactly. So I think that that's really key. What other journaling tools are there? So the one I'm really into right now is the lists of the things that I did that made me a healthier, happier, productive Kathleen Uh and the lists that didn't. So every morning, this is the journal that I do in the morning. So journal of habits, is that what you're talking about? Well, it's habits, yes, but habits, I almost feel like habits is too simplistic because it's not just the actual behavioral habits, but it's like, it can be emotional habits, it can be thought loops that I've let myself get into, but it could be anything. So... I'll give you a few examples. Sure. So I will say, okay, the day before, I really prioritized my yoga after my run. So that would be a habit, right? 
because I feel like it's very easy for me to run because I love running. But then when I finish, I'm like, oh, I just want to shower. But I always feel better when I when I do my yoga. So like just five minutes. Just right. Right. So I will out. say, yep. and I put it in big bold letters, Kathleen, you always feel better when you do your yoga. Right. So I will name that. And it could be as simple as um, I sent James a really like a, a cute little text throughout the day because I knew that he was having a hard day at work. So it could be the, like it could be emotional things, too, because, you know, you send somebody you love a nice text and you feel better because you're making somebody you love feel better. Right. Yep. But it also could be. And then I make a list of the things that I did that didn't make a, me a healthier, or happier Kathleen. So right. anxiety loops that I've let myself get into or one of the things I hate when I do is when I'm rude to service people on the phone like it's not the person's fault that like they didn't make up the rules and I like feel like I get irritated in my voice towards these people and it has nothing like it's not no one's fault right right? so I might note that I will say like that put me in a bad mood to be rude to this person it's not like I swore at them like I wasn't like rude rude but I was irritated and that set me up for a, a less positive day. Right. And then I sort of strategize ways, like if it's a positive habit, how could I reproduce it? And if it's sort of a less than ideal habit, how, like what are the systems that are going to help me not do that? Right. We only have time for one more question, but I think it's one we can cover okay. in, in the time we have. And that is, you had mentioned briefly, there are some technologies that can help support journaling if, you don't, if you're not into pen and paper. There's yeah. some apps. So what would you recommend? So it kind of depends on what you want to get out of it. So the most traditional would be like MyFitnessPal, and that's going to the journal of just like your food and exercise. So that's right. very traditional. And then there's ones that are more, um, I really like, it's called KYO journaling, and it kind of combines knowledge about sort of awareness with feedback loops. So you can you put in reminders. So it could be a reminder to take a deep breath, or it could be a reminder to ask yourself, you know, have I done three things that are going to make me a healthier version of me today? And they also have articles and podcasts on how to sort of evolve into that healthier, happier version of you. So it combines the two and it has, you know, you can take little notes about things. You could write down in there your food and exercise as well, but it's more on the changing your mindset, because once you change your mindset, you then are able to better change your habits. Makes perfect sense. That's all the time we have today. Yeah, And thank you for coming on the show. Will you come back again? Of course. It's my pleasure. I love chatting with you. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Many of us haven't touched a fax machine in years, but for clinicians in Canada, they're still a part of their day-to-day activities. For physicians who are ready to ditch the fax and handwritten paper prescriptions, there's modern tools available like Prescribe-It. Canada Health Infoway's e-prescription platform serves all Canadians, pharmacies, and prescribers. Prescribe-It provides safer and more effective medication management by enabling prescribers to transmit a prescription electronically between a prescriber's electronic medical record and the pharmacy management system of a patient's pharmacy of choice. To learn more and join the movement, visit prescribeit.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
My next guest, Dr. Mohamed Al-Akhria, is the Managing Director of eHealth Center of Excellence, the Chief Clinical Information Officer, Waterloo-Wellington Local Health Integration Network, an Assistant Clinical Professor and Adjunct Professor at McMaster University, and he's an early adopter of Prescribe-It, an e-prescription service built to eliminate the need for paper prescriptions and safeguard patient health data from commercial use. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thank you. So you feel that there's a need for digitized and modern health system for prescriptions. Why is that? Yeah, so, you know, I know patients expect that of us. Patients are often the ones that are carrying that piece of paper and are, you know, need to go from one place to the other, and we really depend on them to carry out that function, but that shouldn't be the case. Patients are sick, and and really they, they need to look out for themselves. And so I think... Patients expect us to have a system where we more seamlessly communicate uh, with each other, where patients have to not tell their story many times, uh, and that they expect sort of smooth transitions in care, and that we function as a, a healthcare team where we are communicating with each other on a regular basis. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen in the system today. Electronic no. prescription is a way to help with that. Yeah, it can be frustrating. Like if you have having to call your doctor to call in a renewal or have, you know, have to call your doctor necessarily because the prescription can't be read or there's a question, it becomes a, a chain of broken telephone that can delay things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, you know, I, I will admit my, my writing is not the best. And yeah, so no, I, I, no doctors are. You're not alone. <laughs> so we go You're to, all guilty. We go to, we go to school yeah. to, to make sure our writing is not so good. But I, you know, I think that you know, it's absolutely true that, you know, things do fall through the cracks and that, you know, people do misinterpret things. I, I know the other day I had a, a fax prescription come in and, and I couldn't read what was on it from the pharmacy in terms of clarification. So my nurse had to call in and, and ask for clarification. With electronic prescription, that's not the case because that information comes in electronically, right. and I'm able to sort of uh, then communicate with the pharmacist electronically. Right. So how else has it benefited your practice? I, I presume it's a big time saver, right? It is. Uh, you know, like anything, you know, you, you have to sort of get used to the new way of doing things, but certainly, you know, there's less faxing and, you know, faxes coming in and our staff having to scan them because, you know, most uh, physicians now use an electronic medical record. So right. we are sort of digital, but we're dealing with a bunch of paper processes in the interim. And so what happens is that paper comes in and then we have to put it, scan it and put it in the chart. And, and then fax it back to them. And so what we do you know, with electronic prescription is that it comes directly to me within my inbox, and so I can deal with it within the regular flow of my prescription. So it certainly saves time. And then that communication piece where, you know, if a pharmacist needs to get in touch with me, they'll have to wait on the phone as I sort of see patients in, in my clinic. And the same with me. I'll have to wait on the phone if I need clarifications. And, you know, with electronic prescription, it's just a, a quick message back and forth, and I've heard from you know, pharmacists that the response is a lot quicker because we, we don't have to sort of wait for that fax to come in, get it scanned in, and then deal with it that way. I'm most businesses, I mean, I don't have a fax machine anymore because nobody else is using it. I can, I can think of only two instances where people use faxes right now, and that would be doctors and, and the CRA. I think those are the only two <laughs> that insist on, on using faxes. How have the e-prescriptions enabled you to provide better care for your patients? Like, is, has it improved the quality of care? I think very much, and so I'll give you just a a case example. So this is a a patient of mine, uh, 82-year-old. She has some cognitive decline. She's doing doing quite well, but some memory issues are are starting to creep in there. Um, She came in for a pretty simple thing, a urinary tract infection, 
And so, uh, you know, prescribe an antibiotic, and I, I sent to the pharmacy electronically through prescribe it. What I noticed sort of the next morning was that she hadn't picked it up. So we, we never got in the past is a dispense notification. I know that the patient has picked up the medication because I have this dispense notification now. Right. Um, and so she hadn't picked it up. And so I messaged the pharmacist through prescribe it, and the pharmacist said, no, she hadn't picked it up, and the pharmacy then graciously organized to deliver it to her. So that's something that, you know, it's a sort of pretty routine thing that many people have, but if you're 82 and you have cognitive impairment, that can lead to delirium, hospitalization, it can lead to sort of a bigger infection uh, and a long hospital stay. And so that was avoided because we were able to communicate pretty quickly and, and, and support the patient in getting the medication. We know that 30 to 40 percent of patients who walk out the door with a prescription don't fill it. And I think there's some good reasons and there's probably more dialogue that needs to happen around that. But some of it is, you know, maybe she was a little bit better, maybe she just forgot. And, and so I think this helps us sort of close the gap. And in that way, it really has a tremendous potential to impact patient care. Have any patients objected to it? Like, do they see it as an intrusion at all in the process? Yeah, I, you know, I think people love that piece of paper, right, in their right, hand. Like exactly, they're going it's theirs. Away with something. Yeah. And, and so I think that's a bit of, of getting used to, oh, you mean the pharmacy will have it when I get there? And so I think it's a bit of getting used to, but once they realize that we're sort of communicating directly with the pharmacy, that in fact, when they actually go to the pharmacy, the prescription will be ready for them. They don't have to wait because the pharmacy's got it. I send it directly during the visit. You know, I had a child the other day when I was on call that had an ear infection. I sent it to the pharmacy, and when that parent and child got to the pharmacy, the medication's ready. So no more waiting with a sick child trying to get that prescription filled. So I think that experience, when, when you, you do have to talk a little bit about it to, to patients because it's a new way of, of doing things, but very quickly they, they sort of say, oh, that's great. That will help improve my experience with, you know, getting my prescription. So it's not, a, it's not a hard sell at all. So you've been using this system. Let's say you prescribe something that's, you know, obviously some things are, are more obscure than others, some medications. Yes. Will you be able to tell whether or not the pharmacy actually has it in stock or whether there will be a delay in actually filling the prescription? The pharmacy will message back. So these are the clarifications or, or you know, this medication is on the stock. Would you prescribe this medication? I don't instantly know. Like, it, it won't, so it doesn't look linked to their inventory system system on my end. Right. But on the pharmacist end, it goes right into their system. And this is, that's the beauty of it. It's full end-to-end integration. So when it goes right into their system, then they can use their inventory management to more quickly sort of get back to me and say, no, this is not available. Could you try this? And it's a simple message. It's not a fax sort of coming in and, and waiting somewhere. And so that turnaround time is, is decreased. So, you know, we, we, you know there's, a, there's a few steps, but it's pretty quick. Good. What do you feel is the, the, the most impactful element of using this sort of system, the e-prescription system? I think, you know, we know that there's increased complexity in our system, and we know we have to function more as a team in terms of healthcare providers. And so this establishes a virtual team between, you know, a prescriber and pharmacist, between primary care provider and, and pharmacist. And so you act as a team around that patient, and you work together with the patient to really look at, you know, what their medications look like. It helps you with reconciling those medications to make sure that people are not on duplicate medications. You've got the most appropriate things for them. And so it's that virtual team that's really critical. And I think as we sort of spread out 
as technology and it connects to things like you know patient portals, then you start to involve the patient and caregiver in the circle. And, and I think that's going to be you know extremely valuable because we know that we have to deal with this in a different way. Otherwise, you know, it, we're, we're not going to decrease costs and we're not going to provide the experience that patients deserve. Do the patients need to, uh, do they need a certain requisite level of technology uh, knowledge or technology in and of itself in order to participate in that loop? Because yeah, not, so, not everybody yeah. has it, right? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think that you have to make sure that everyone can participate. But it's interesting, you know, my 80-year-olds and 70-year-olds have access to technology in some way. And so whether it's themselves or their caregivers, they're able to sort of get online. And so I do, you know, messaging, do virtual visits with patients. And surprising how many elderly patients want access, but, you know, even, even people who are more complex, vulnerable. You know, I, I think there's different ways to engage people, whether you set up sort of places where they can virtually connect with you or you just deal with in different ways. So, yeah, I think that's a very good point. You need to understand that people have different levels of literacy in terms of uh, digital technology, and you need to deal with that. I think the beauty of this is most of the stuff happens in the background, um, yeah. and I think that's where we can improve things. You know, it's, it's, it, you mentioned facts. It's this is really the Acts the Facts movement where we're trying to get the information more quickly to the next destination so that patient can have the exact same experience they had before but faster and a better quality because the, the information is all there. Right. We only have time for one more question, but do, do you have any sort of uh, stories of how this e-prescription has sort of helped with your practice that you haven't told us already? Yeah, I've got another one. And, you know, we know there's the, the opioid crisis is sort of significant across the country. And, and so I had a, a patient who had significant anxiety, was seeing a psychiatrist and, and came to see me. And, you know, the psychiatrist has prescribed a, a medication called the benzodiazepine, so a medication for anxiety attacks. Yep. And so I went and re-prescribed that medication, and I got an alert from the pharmacy, so a message through e-prescribe it. So this, this patient's actually on methadone. So they've been sort of on opioids, and, and they're trying to get them off opioids. That's a lethal combination of wow. medications. And, and so, um, you know, I, I was able to sort of you know, obviously stop the prescription and then have a good conversation with the patient because, you know, you still need, you need to deal with that anxiety. You need to deal with what's going on, but we could do in a safe way. And so I think that's another key thing is that safety will be increased, whether it is, you know, dealing with controlled substances that we need to just be a little bit more careful and there's you know appropriate times to prescribe these medications but we have to be more careful and more vigilant as a as a collective team with patient and provider or whether it's things like allergies allergies transfer over in the system and and so pharmacists now have access to the allergies that i have in my record so i think safety is a really big component of this and uh, you know i'm already seeing in my practice how it's closing the loop on uh, a number of these things Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. No, no problem. My pleasure. Thanks. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn all about lectin-free and gluten-free diets on The Tonic. Our new sponsor, Canprev, is a great natural health company, homegrown right here in Canada. What I love about Canprev is that they take the time to choose the best quality ingredients and formulations that empower Canadians to take an active role in their own health and wellness. New from Camprev is their unique vitamin K2 called K2 Vital. It's produced from soy-free plant oils in a way that yields a pure 100% trans form of K2 that is 100% usable by our bodies. They also take a lot of care to produce educational resources. To learn more about this misunderstood vitamin, you can download their ebook at vitamink2.ca.
The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Shauna Lindzen, is a registered dietitian with over 25 years of experience. She's worked as a clinical dietitian at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in nephrology and neurosurgery for 12 years. Since leaving the clinical setting, she's been working in the community as a consulting dietitian. She sees private clients at the Davisville Family Practice, WellPoint Health Center, and Akira MD, a doctor in your pocket. Over the years, she's been a food industry consultant and a media spokesperson for a variety of companies. Since 2013, she's worked as a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Jamie. So, you know, as a health and wellness publisher, I get ahead of the trends because I get pitched with all these ideas, the new books that come out, the new ideas about diet and nutrition because they're trends and they come and they go. And the reason I thought it would be interesting to have you on the show today is because there's a new one kind of a new one that's out having to do with lectins. Yes. And who better than you to come on and explain what lectins are and and how the body reacts to them. So let's start there. Lectins certainly is one of those buzzwords right now. People don't know what they are. No, they don't. So they are actually carbohydrate binding proteins found in beans and grains. So some people think, "Uh uh-oh, if I eat beans and grains, these are going to affect me. Right. Fortunately, you don't have to avoid them. Do you know what you have to do? What do you have to do? Cook them. Yeah. See, I had to do an interview for somebody who was a keynote speaker uh, at a health show that's going to be in Toronto. And his whole shtick was lectins have to be avoided. That They have to be removed from the diet, which, which I found curious. I'm not a big fan of exclusionary diets, so I'm glad to hear that that's not the same page that you're on. And I will sing your praises for that, because I agree with you. We first have to figure out what they are, why would they affect us, and should we exclude them. So in this case, with lectins, for some people, they can cause upset stomach, but that's only if they're eaten uncooked. When's the last time you had a raw kidney bean? Uh, I would say never. I I would say the only ones, and they're not even raw, like edamame you might eat steamed, right? But they're pre-cooked, like before they're put into their frozen state. So things like beans, lentils, chickpeas, we boil them first. Right. And then we eat them. When I was in Italy, I think I had fava beans that were fresh. I think that's the only instance. Sorry, you you quizzed me, but they they were properly double peeled and everything, and and they were eaten raw. So So I, I wonder if they were steamed a little bit. Like, I'm not sure if they were completely raw because usually raw beans are very hard 
and fibrous. Like they're yeah, no, actually I, crunchy. These may have been sort of like uh, baby bean type of thing situations. Uh-huh. So maybe not fully grown, but I, I'm pretty sure they were fresh. They're but raw. I, but I don't want to digress. So so you're saying some people may suffer from upset stomach. Does it get any higher than that, or is it just a, a rumbly tummy? It's people who if they eat them often and they do have the upset stomach, there is something called leaky gut syndrome. Right, which some doctors subscribe to as a thing and others don't, right? Exactly. I think it's one of those things where if you eat, you let's say the beans, the legumes, your stomach becomes upset, there definitely might be something that's bothering you. So what I typically say is try it again, see right. what symptoms you get, and if you do feel quite unwell, avoid them, or there are some tips that you can do in order to eat these beans and lentils. Right. Okay, so number one, buy them sprouted. Okay. Or sprout them yourself. But you do have to be careful because you don't you have to read how to sprout things because you don't want to introduce bacteria. I was just gonna say uh, yeah. and also even buying sprouted Beans can be a bit of a challenge. Make sure you're looking at package dates uh, and moisture you know, content. Right. Um, you want to turn the if it's one in one of those plastic packages, you turn it upside down. You see if there's any um, residue. Yeah. Residue. You want them really dry. Yeah. To be honest, there are drier ones on the market. And if you have a compromised immune system, like if you're going through chemotherapy or if you're right. you know above the age of 85, let's say, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend to have sprouts, especially if you go to a restaurant because you never know where they came from. So I like to buy them myself. I like to avoid them at restaurants unless it's a reputable restaurant, but you still never know, right? Right. Another tip is to pressure cook them. So you are getting them softer. The more you cook them, the more you reduce the lectins. Right. So if you're working with dry beans, you know, giving them a good soak overnight is a good idea to soften them up before cooking. Yes. And and a slow cooking process uh, where you're breaking down the the proteins. Actually, the slow cooker and a microwave are not recommended. Aha. Okay. How come? They don't come to the heat and the pressure that you need. I didn't mean specifically a slow cooker, but slow cooking them in the sense that you're cooking them over a lower heat over a longer period of time. Yes, to some extent. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you want to make sure, like, if you have, you know how the Instant Pot is a really yeah. popular method of cooking yeah. right now? Yeah. If you have an Instant Pot, I would say that that is a better method than right. slow cooking them. Because okay. you're, you're getting them to a really high temperature quickly. So you're releasing those lectins, the carbohydrate-bound proteins. Okay. I guess one key takeaway point, and and this is sort of my own little picadillo, is just because there's a book out there that says if you have an upset stomach, it might be because of lectins, doesn't mean that everybody on the planet should not be eating lectins. And and I think this is a problem in the way that we're approaching health and wellness. And it's a problem in particular with the gluten-free industry in my humble opinion. Yes, and I agree with you. I think that the gluten-free is another trend that unfortunately has taken off too big. It's a it's a bigger trend than it should be. People who should be avoiding gluten are people who have celiac, which is an right. autoimmune disease. Which is a real autoimmune disease. Yes. And they may have sensitivities. Yes, so that's an inherited gene. Correct. And if you're celiac, you can't change that because right. it's an inherited gene. Whereas there is something that is called gluten intolerance. Right. And people do have that. That's real. That's real. And if you talk to someone who has it, they'll say it's real. You don't feel Yeah, well. no, empirically yeah. it's real. And, and I certainly understand why you'd want to limit 
or eliminate gluten from your diet if you are in those categories. Yes. However, there was a bit of a movement once it got rolling when gluten-free became a thing, let's say five years ago, where it was suggested that everybody would be better off not having gluten. And that's sort of where I thought, no, I don't think that's the case. And what does that do? That makes the industry go crazy with selling and producing right. um, gluten-free products. And the negative side of that story is that you're getting less nutrients, number one, right. less fiber. Right. So if you buy a corn pasta, a rice pasta, even some quinoa pastas are just mixed with rice. And people think, oh, I'm getting lots of protein. I'm getting lots of fiber. Yeah. So protein and fiber are biggies in that regard. Some pastas actually, I, I know we're talking about lentils, and they will mix lentils with the corn, with the rice, which does bump up the protein. But you're also getting less of the vitamins and minerals because they might not be enriched. Right. My beef with the gluten-free products is some of them really don't taste that great. Look, I under, I'm sympathetic to anybody who has celiac who needs these products, right? And they are wonderful. If you can't have bread, if you can't have pasta, having these crackers or whatever is fantastic. But the texture and taste of a lot of these products are, let's just say, an acquired taste. And I completely agree because I've tried, I would say I've tried probably 10 to 15 of them. I run cooking demos here in Toronto, so I right. recipe test a lot. Right. So a tip is usually the corn pasta, if you do have celiac, I have a very good friend who has celiac, yep. and she tends to get the corn pastas, not the rice pastas. No, they're not as nutritious, but guess what? They hold up, and right. they're not gummy. Yep. So it's, it is very difficult, and I'm happy that I don't have to follow a gluten-free right. diet because it's, it's stressful. And if you do have celiac, it's a medical condition. If you get a little bit of gluten, like the size of a little prick of gluten— you're in the washroom, you're feeling sick, you're not feeling well. So my advice is, if you don't have to follow a gluten-free diet, make sure you choose whole foods that aren't as refined where you get your vitamins and minerals. Right. And, and then let's circle back to lectins for a moment, because you mentioned grains and beans. The writer that I had referenced earlier when, when talking about eliminating it from your diet, he was talking about eliminating nightshades as well, which meant no tomatoes, no potatoes. And I can't remember what else is in that family, but pretty much a lot of the things I eat he was suggesting should be eliminated from the diet because we all need to avoid lectins. And that just didn't seem practical to me. No, that's actually jumping into another category. And unless there's, unless you can find the scientific evidence to back that up, everybody is different. Everybody is going to be affected by different things. If someone says to me, a nightshade vegetable affects me, I listen to them and I say, don't have it. Have something else in that category then. If a red pepper bothers you, try a green pepper. You right. don't want to eliminate too many foods. So you're reducing the amount of nutrients you take in. Right. And I, and I think the key is if, if you're going to experiment, this is for all the listeners out there, if you're going to try and exclude certain foods from your diet, I think you should do it under supervision of a medical practitioner, number Absolutely. one, or a professional, like a registered dietitian. And also consider what nutrients you're giving up because it isn't as simple as just taking the food out of your diet. You may need to replace those nutrients in other ways. Good point. And diets don't work. Lifestyle changes do. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But you're going to come back next month and talk about cruciferous vegetables, right? Absolutely. Fantastic. 
Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For great articles written by Joel Thuna, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss parasites, cleansing, and fibre, spiralizing your vegetables, and why some restaurants succeed while others fail. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.